Good morning, brethren. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. It's been quite some time since I filled another pulpit, so this is a, a refreshing experience for me. I hope it is for you as well. We're very pleased to offer greetings from Christ Reformed Church of Albany. We're about 18 months old, kind of feeling adolescent and awkward at this point, so your prayers have been greatly beneficial and God has blessed them. Please do continue to pray for us as we will remember to pray for you, all of you brethren as well. Uh, bear with me, please, this morning as my voice is getting weaker by the minute. I think it's allergy season, so uh, be with. Uh, pray that the Lord would be with me and be patient with me as we work through our time together this morning. We have a task set before us, really too large of an object, to look at the doctrine of the necessity of the suffering of Jesus Christ. And I want you to turn, if you would please, in your copies of the scripture to Mark chapter 15, Mark chapter 15, I'll be reading verses 14 through 37 this morning. Mark chapter 15, beginning at verse 14. But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Now there's always a challenge presented when dropping somewhat haphazardly into the end of a book of scripture. So much context is lost in the process. Now, for the sake of time, I can't build up the context for us of the preceding 14 chapters of Mark's gospel, nor do I expect that you would suppose that I would. 
It's necessary, I think, however, and helpful, rather, to note a few things before we proceed with our excursion into a doctrinal study of the necessity of the suffering of Jesus Christ. The previous chapter ends with Jesus standing before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, facing a largely chaotic and ineffectual mock trial. The trial doesn't even seem to proceed properly until Jesus affirms that he is indeed the Messiah, and then further declares that this very council will see him coming in the clouds with power and glory. Now this declaration loudly declared judgment and Christ's kingly authority. From that moment, after saying these things, then the high priest and the council seem to find their unity in their condemnation of Jesus. Now it's helpful to know, it's helpful to know that moment leading up to Calvary because it reveals how violently offended the world is when presented with the kingship of Jesus Christ. The title, King of the Jews, appears five times in chapter 15, and additionally in chapter 32, Jesus is scornfully called the King of Israel. Now this is a clear emphasis in the text, brethren. I point this out to you because when noted in the context of the violence of men against Jesus at Calvary, it reveals an obsessive hatred of the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ. It's naturally found in the essential being and character of fallen mankind to reject his rule and reign, and that violently. A whole sermon, I suppose, could easily be set aside to discuss just that one aspect. Now, rather than do that, I simply want to point out that man's hatred of Christ's sovereign rule is almost certainly the key source of motivation for the cruelty inflicted upon our Lord leading up to and including his crucifixion. Now, Satan surely is also to be seen as present in Christ's suffering at the hands of these wicked people, notwithstanding fallen man's innate wicked delight in sin and violence as a motivating factor as well. I don't think it's a stretch, however, to say that the overriding reason for mankind's violence against the Son of God was a specific hatred for the Holy King and deliberate rebellion against his righteous government. Now, having said all that, For us to suppose that hatred, that rebellion of mankind, is the sole reason, or even the most significant reason for the suffering of Jesus Christ narrated to us here in Mark 15, is to miss the greater testimony of Scripture regarding the suffering of Jesus. Now truly, he did suffer, brethren. He suffered more than any man. He suffered as a child, first coming into this world, born in a stable and laid in a manger. Were there any here born in a stable? No inn would give him or his parents shelter. He lived under the persecution of King Herod with his parents fleeing to Egypt to preserve his life when he was only a little one. Have any of our children faced that? He bore with the sins of mankind, knowing the wickedness that was in every person's heart continually. No one needed to tell him what was hidden inside a man's inner nature because Scripture tells us he knew what was in man. He bore weakness and frailty and hunger. He bore suffering and temptation and strong desire of the flesh. He was the particular target of Satan's ire and his wiles. Jesus suffered indignities not worthy of his station. He condescended to leave the glories of heaven and take on human nature to be born a little lower than the angels he had created. He suffered the setting aside of divine glory, not considering it a thing to be grasped and held on to tightly. 
He suffered dishonor from his own. They received him not. They refused to give him due honor, even in his own hometown, among his own household. His own family treated him like a madman at the beginning of his ministry. He was ridiculed and insulted. He was called a drunkard, a Samaritan, insane and demon-possessed. He was accused of insurrection and rebellion. He lived without the common necessities of life. Even a fox had a den, but he had nowhere to lay his head. He was arrested on false charges. He was arraigned in a mock trial. He was insulted by kings and governors, scorned and mocked, beaten by both the Herodians and the soldiers of Pilate. A woven crown of long and cruelly sharp acacia spines was forced down upon his head, horribly lacerating his scalp and his face. And he was denied food and water. He was spat upon and then scourged with a whip of cords interwoven with broken bits of bone or shell, possibly rock or glass. He would have experienced agonizing pain and great loss of blood as his back was laid open to his spine. In his critically injured and weakened state, he was then forced to carry the heavy cross on which he would be crucified. He was fastened to that cross with nails of iron driven through his hands and his feet. Naked and classed among common criminals, Jesus hung there for hours, laboring for breath, slowly dying from shock, exposure, suffocation, and blood loss. And all the while, as he continued to suffer the mockery and the scorn of the wicked, he also suffered, brethren, the imputation of the uncountable sins of his people and the indescribably full wrath of Almighty God for that sin. And then he experienced the abandonment of his heavenly Father. Without doubt, Jesus Christ suffered. But if we only see that suffering without scriptural meaning, we're left with a scene of purposeless violence perpetrated against a poor, undeserving man by twisted and unreasonable people. We're left with a false and blasphemous perspective of a cruel and capricious Father God. If we only understand the, the suffering of our Lord at this shallow level, what we read here in Mark 15 is reduced to a meaningless tragedy and empty cruelty. And sadly, this is all the lost and fallen world can make of these events. But that blind and that unbelieving perspective, brethren, we know is simply untrue. Let's talk about the scriptural testimony of the necessity of Christ's suffering. Now, Peter, via the pen of Mark, has already told us that a shallow perspective, such a shallow perspective as that, is an incorrect interpretation of the suffering of Jesus Christ. Well prior to Calvary, in Mark 8.31, teaching his disciples about his messianic calling as they journeyed on the road, Jesus tells them this. He tells them, quote, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. In Mark 9.12, Jesus would teach his disciples that, quote, he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. Luke tells us that a few days after the crucifixion and the death of our Lord, the very day he resurrected, Jesus would meet up with two of his disciples traveling on the road to Emmaus. In Luke 24, 25 and 26, we're told that Jesus said the following to his disciples. Oh, foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary 
that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. Soon after, the resurrected Jesus would again appear to the disciples as they were gathered together, and he would eat with them and he would declare to them, quote, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day and on the third day rise from the dead. Brethren, the apostles would take up this same declaration of Jesus Christ and they would preach it to the nations. In Acts 17, 1 through 3, we read these words. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica and there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. In his later years, the Apostle Paul, remember, he'll stand before King Agrippa and Governor Festus and he'll testify to the same thing. He'll testify in Acts 26, 23, quote, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles, unquote. Brethren, the testimony of Christ and the Apostles declaring and interpreting the testimony of Scripture. It tells us that the suffering of our Lord was far from meaningless. It was necessary. It was prophesied. It proceeded by divine decree. The Christ must suffer. Our Lord and the apostles found that truth to be so significant that the urgency of that message defined the apostles' gospel preaching, as we read in Acts. The Christ must suffer. That doctrine... Being, I hope, in your minds indisputable, it should leave us to ask a vital question. Why? Why was it necessary for the Christ to suffer? That's the question which, by the help of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Scriptures today, I want to work toward answering in the time we have together. Why? So let's look at that. Why the Scriptures declare the necessity of Christ's suffering? Well, first of all, brethren, Christ suffered as a witness to the verity, that is, the truthful and certain reliability of God. Not long after the ascension of Jesus, Peter and John would preach to the Jews at Solomon's portico in the temple, and he'll make this statement, they they will make this statement to their unsafe countrymen. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. At a foundational level, the suffering of Christ was necessary to prove the verity of God. The decree of God that the Messiah should suffer had been declared by the prophets. And when Christ suffered, historically, prophecy was fulfilled to the verification of the truthfulness and the reliability of God's word. God had given his word, his solemn promise, his decree that the Christ would suffer. The prophecies of the suffering Messiah were more than merely predictive, brethren. They were decretive and declarative. The coming seed of the woman prophesied in Genesis 3 would be bruised on the heel by the seed of the serpent. That moment of enmity between the seeds was decreed by God. The one through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed, that seed of Abraham was declared to be coming by prophetic decree of God. And the children of Abraham, the children of Israel, were taught of that coming one's suffering through the sacrificial system which they received from God. The sacrificial system appeared first, remember, in the Garden of Eden. 
when God killed animals and clothed Adam and Eve in their skins. That sacrificial system passed down to Abel, who offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain when he killed the firstborn of his flock. Interesting that it's the firstborn that are required in sacrifice. It's always the firstborn, the firstfruits. This is predictive foreshadowing of Christ. That sacrificial system was expressed again after the flood when Noah came out of the ark of salvation and offered sacrifices of every clean animal. Every clean animal. I hope you're seeing the connections. That sacrificial system of a suffering victim was declared to Abraham when God provided the ram in the thicket to be killed instead of his son Isaac. That prophetic system of sacrifice was declared to Israel in her Passover meal and her sacrifices of atonement and all of her sacrificial rites prior to Christ. God had decreed a suffering victim and brethren, a blood cost which had to be paid. It must be paid. It would be paid. In Isaiah 52 and 53, we, we read very clear prophetic declaration of the suffering of Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 52, 14 and 15, we read these words. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human siblings, his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. In Isaiah 53, 3 through 11, I'm going to read all of these verses. Bear with me and listen to the prophet Isaiah. There we listen to the prophecy of the suffering Messiah. Isaiah 53, beginning at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed, him, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Brethren, Christ suffered as the sacrificial victim, just as God prophesied through his prophet Isaiah. What God decreed and declared through his prophets, he also fulfilled just as Peter and John preached to the Jews from Solomon's portico. God had declared blood guilt to be paid. The Messiah, therefore, would be stricken, smitten with blows, marred, afflicted, and crushed. God had decreed it. Christ, therefore, had to suffer these things as the sacrificial victim so that God's truthfulness and the certainty of his decree might be revealed and known. 
Now, this is the foundation, the very base rock of our confidence in the verity of God in his gracious extension of his covenant of salvation to us. He establishes the work of redemption with a promise of the suffering of his son, the seed, the coming one, the redeemer. This is the one in whom God delights suffering as decreed and prophetically declared so that you may know that God does not violate his word. His word is true. His decree knows no end. To establish the accomplishment of the work of the promised seed, God must have his word fulfilled, and the seed, Jesus Christ, must suffer. Now, by way of application, as we consider these thoughts, even before we look into the details of what God promises to do for us in our salvation, we, the elect beneficiaries of his gracious covenant of redemption through his Son, when we observe the suffering of Jesus, we are assured ahead of time that everything God promises is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Brethren, that Christ suffered as God decreed and prophetically declared is proof positive that what God promises to you of salvation through his suffering, it's trustworthy. It's certain. Christ suffered. Therefore, God's word is true. The bruised heel of the seed of the woman was accomplished as God declared. Therefore, you may believe what God declares of salvation through the seed of the woman. For instance, you may also believe with certainty that the seed of the woman also crushes the serpent's head. We can say, at least in part, That the suffering of Christ was necessary to prove that God's declaration of salvation through his suffering is a reliable word from God. This is Paul's understanding when he considers God's promise of the suffering of his son and what that accomplished for us as he declared. In Romans 8.32, Paul says the following, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Notice that Isaiah 53, 4 and 5 told us we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Isaiah 53, 6 tells us, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We're being told that God has delivered the blows of suffering in fulfillment of his redemptive decree. Now, if that's the case, If God is so trustworthy to do that, to not spare the suffering of his own son, then we may be assured that every salvific promise, every promised blessing of God's goodness to his people may be wholeheartedly believed. The suffering of Jesus had to proceed so that God's people may know that his promises of salvation are true and reliable. When you see the suffering of Jesus Christ and you reflect upon that, brethren, You are to know that God keeps his word. You're to know that and to rejoice in the certainty of your promised salvation. There is no grounds for doubting that God will keep his word, that he'll never, that he'll ever violate his covenant. He'll never do that with his people. He proved his verity on the body of his son. But this is a two edged sword. To see the suffering of Jesus by the certain decree of the Father is to know the unalterable commitment of God in another sense as well. The suffering of Jesus was purposed to demonstrate the certainty of the wrath of God poured out against sin. 
In 1 Peter 3.8, the apostle tells us plainly, For Christ also suffered once for sins. His suffering is a plain demonstration that sin merits pain and suffering and death. The soul who sins shall die. Ezekiel 18.20 Isaiah 53.10 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. Why, brethren, when his soul makes an offering for guilt? The crushing suffering which God decreed his son should endure was due to guilt. Christ's suffering, his wounding was for transgressions, not his own brethren, ours. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10, Paul explains that our escape from God's wrath was due to Christ's suffering to death for us so that we might be saved from God's wrath against our sin. There Paul says this, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. The very fact that Christ has suffered so greatly and by the decree of the Father teaches us, it teaches the world that God will absolutely deal finally and terribly with sin. Christ's suffering at Calvary is as clear a statement of God's terrible condemnation of sin as the world could hope, or brethren, rather fear to witness. Christ cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken for the sins of the redeemed imputed to him. If God did not spare his own son for the imputed sins of the redeemed, he certainly will not spare those men, women and children of this world who bear their own sins and neglect the salvation found in Christ. The writer of Hebrews says it perfectly in Hebrews 2, 2 and 3. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Did you follow the apostles' reasoning there? If the prophetic word regarding Christ's suffering for sin has proven true, and it has, we just read of that wrath poured out on Christ at Calvary, if that's, since that has happened, every transgression of the saved believer has been punished in Christ's suffering, a just retribution from the Father. Now, since that proved true on Calvary, how can anyone escape God's wrath if they neglect the salvation provided by Christ bearing God's wrath for sin? The prophetic word proved true. Christ suffered wrath against sin as prophesied. Therefore, the world may know that God will deal with sin with wrath. He'll deal with rebellion, with suffering. He'll reward sin with death. It is certain, and Christ's suffering and death proved it. Therefore, the unbeliever, the hearer of the gospel who rejects it, if, if that's you and you hear my voice today, listen, you have been thoroughly warned. Your blood is on your own hands if you re reject so great a salvation. If you reject so great a revelation of truth as the suffering of Christ at Calvary declares to you. The soul that sins shall die. If you're hearing my words today and you've neglected to receive this great salvation. If you have refused to cast your sins in faith upon Christ to bear for you. Then your blood is not on my hands. I've warned you. The suffering of Jesus Christ is not without purpose. It has declared to you that God will judge your sin. 
Even when that sin is imputed to his holy and only begotten son whom he loves, he'll deal with it. He'll deal with your sin in Christ on his head or on your own. You have been warned in the suffering of Christ to flee the wrath to come. Repent of your sin and your obstinacy. Turn to Jesus to be saved. He calls you to cast your sin, your guilt upon him, that he may be crushed for you. It's only self-destructive folly that would keep a man, a woman, or a child from fleeing to the safety of his suffering and his death at Calvary. In his hands and in his feet and at his side are the scars that declare that God judges sin, but that Jesus has offered to bear that sin. I urge you, go to him now, even in quiet prayer, and ask him to rescue you out of your hard-hearted neglect of his salvation. Ask him to give you faith to rest with complete confidence in God's gracious work of salvation promised in the suffering of Jesus Christ. Only there will you find shelter of love and goodness offered by God to shield you from his own judgment of sin. Christ's suffering declares to you that you are doomed on your own. How else do we consider the necessity of the suffering of Christ? What does scripture teach us? Well, let's consider that from the perspective of redemption. Having looked into the necessity of Christ's suffering from a a broader, decretive perspective and noting what it reveals of the veracity of God, I want to now take a moment or two to look at what Scripture declares of the necessity of Christ's suffering from a redemptive perspective. Why is Christ's suffering necessary in terms of the redemption of the sinner? Remember that from the moment that Adam appears with cognizance in the Garden of Eden, he's informed of an immutable truth. Now, we've already declared that truth when I quoted Ezekiel 18.20. Let me read two statements from Ezekiel 18 combined. Ezekiel 18.4, attached to the first declarative phrase of Ezekiel 18.20. That reads as follows. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son, is mine. The soul who sins shall die. This immutable truth was declared to Adam when God forbade him from eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. At that time, recall, he declared to Adam, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Transgression is declared by God to be unavoidably rewarded with death. It merits death. It receives death always. When the wickedness of man became great in the earth, God ceased to forbear universal judgment, declaring in Genesis 6-3, my spirit will not contend with man forever. And the Lord prepared a great flood to scour the earth of all life, save Noah and seven other souls. When we read of the law given to Israel, there are always curses associated with disobedience, aren't there? Samson's sin cost him his eyes, his dignity, his strength, and eventually his life. David numbered Israel in disobedience to the command of God, and 70,000 men of Israel are killed by the Lord through a plague. In the Proverbs of Solomon, the the wise king speaks again and again of the principle that the way of the transgressor is hard. The fool who violates the law of God and will not fear him experiences pain and sorrow and death. In the Proverbs, we learn that the rod is for the back of the fool. The careless and immoral youth has his liver pierced with an arrow, we're told there. We read of Eli falling from a wall and breaking his neck when God judges his sin of allowing his sons to profane the worship of Israel. Christ speaks of those who go into hellfire when they die 
for the rejection of his messianic mission of redemption. The rich and the unrighteous and the hypocritical who refuse to repent and believe go to a place of judgment where there is a wailing and gnashing of teeth continually. Paul tells us in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. A person's sin, bottom line, a person's sins always merit and eventually produce suffering and death. Now for this reason, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. In Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5, we're told that Christ bore the chastening of God. He bore God's wrath and sorrow and the certain pain and suffering that God's final and complete judgment of sin produces. He bore that, we're told, for those whom he reconciled to God. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, one more time, listen again. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds were healed. We read in verse 7 of the same chapter that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Iniquity is sin, but considered from the perspective of stickiness. It's attached to you. It gets on you. You can't get it off. In verse 10, we read that it was the will of God to crush him and put him to grief as a sacrifice to expiate guilt. That through the anguish of his soul, the anguish of Christ's soul, God's justice and righteous wrath against sin was satisfied. Brethren, this is why the Christ had to suffer. So that those who are saved by his sacrifice might stand in God's sight no longer deserving wrath and judgment for sin. This is what Paul declares to the church in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 20 and 21. Listen to what Paul says. Paul calls men, women, and children to be redeemed in Christ Jesus. He says the following. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ became sin to suffer for the sake of reconciling the elect to God. Peter declares this clearly in 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Without the suffering of Christ for his people, none would be saved. God's wrath would never be satisfied by the sinner bearing it. It's an infinite wrath. It's a transcendent judgment, divine in its weight and power. It's an infinite righteousness which has been violated by sin, and therefore an infinite punishment is merited. No mortal man could bear that materially or, or spiritually and continue to exist, let alone bear it to the satisfaction of God's infinitely holy and divine justice. So the Son of Man, who is also the divine begotten Son of God, must bear that wrath and satisfy that justice. He alone is able by merit, by the transcendent excellency of his divine person, to suffer wrath and judgment for the reconciliation of the redeemed elect. That's you, brethren. The writer of Hebrews states it this way. Hebrews 2.9 But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, because of the suffering of death. Do you hear it again? The necessity? 
because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Christ suffered the indignity of coming in the form of a servant. The creator took on the nature of the creature. If we can begin to understand that, I doubt it. He lowered himself. He suffered a cruel death because that was what was required to satisfy the righteous character of God revealed to Adam when he said, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Christ became sin and suffered and died so that death might be defeated for his people. And death was utterly defeated by the Lord Jesus. Why? Because in his suffering, he made satisfaction for sin. Again, listen to what the writer of Hebrews says when he argues against the necessity of a continuation of the Old Testament sacrificial system. In Hebrews 9.26, we read these words. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Do you hear the finality of those words? The certainty? The suffering of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, occurs entirely and finally, necessarily once for all, and his sacrifice has put away our sin, brethren. He, has, he had to suffer to redeem his people from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for them so that they might be reconciled to God through him. Sin must produce suffering. So in bearing the sins of his people, Christ must suffer. So that his people, ultimately, brethren, so that we might escape that suffering. It was necessary. Brethren, we could spend an entire sermon on just the application of these teachings regarding the necessity of Christ's suffering. I'm not going to do that to you. I hardly know where to begin, really, or rather where to end, since we're coming nearing the conclusion of our time and the word together this morning. Let me try to wrap up these doctrines of the suffering Savior with a clear and simple point of application for us. Understand this, brethren, that if Christ has suffered for his people, if he has suffered necessarily for his people by bearing the sins of his people then no suffering will be required of you at the hand of God for your sin if you are one of his own it will not be required of you now let me be clear earth side that is not heaven side you may count on experiencing suffering if you choose sin believer if you sow the wind you too will reap the whirlwind Indeed, we learn from the writer of Hebrews that God chastens us. He chastens every one of his children, scourging those whom he receives. But believer, you're to understand this, that even in the most painful moments of God's chastening for sin, you are never to be condemned for sin. Because Christ has borne that terrible, that unfathomable judgment and condemnation for you. He suffered once for you. Once and for all. There is no further need for suffering. He bore judgment once for you. There's no reason for you to fear condemnation in hell. The separation from God, which Adam sinfully chose for you, which separation your own sinful choices have confirmed, that separation is gone. It's been removed by Christ Jesus, who suffered for you if your faith rests in him, if you have been saved by his redeeming work. Romans 8.1 Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Could it be more clear? 
Would Christ suffer in vain for you? Is that possible? Would he wear that crown of thorns needlessly? Would he suffer the indignities of coming in the flesh a little lower than the angels he created, permanently and irrevocably binding himself with human nature for all time, for no certain reason? Would Christ suffer being spat upon and mocked and beaten, his face marred more than any man's, without securing the prize for which he suffered, the salvation of his people? Would Christ bear the indescribable agony of divine wrath and the rejection of the Father needlessly? Will you, who have put your trust in Christ, someday discover, is it possible that you someday will be terribly disillusioned and discover that Jesus really did suffer without cause for you. It's absurd, isn't it, when I ask it that way. The divine Son of God was somehow tricked. He was mistaken or he was duped or in error. You've put your trust in the sufficiency of his suffering for you. But somehow, some force of power greater than the verity of our unchangeable, sovereign, covenanting God... Something has reversed the efficacy of Christ's suffering for you? It's not possible. It's not possible. Christ cannot suffer in vain for his people. His necessary suffering is fixed, certain, sufficient, and effectual for the salvation of those who put their trust in him. Believer, he cannot fail to save you because through faith in him, you have been become a recipient of the benefits of his suffering. Those benefits are irrevocable. They are the gift of God to the elect. Who can revoke or take away the gift that God gives? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me ask you, do you see how the suffering of Christ is necessary? It declares the certainty of that promise to you. Brethren, your salvation is built on a foundation that is so fixed, so certain, so sure, that there is nothing more certain, more sure and trustworthy in this life which you'll ever discover of which you'll ever hear. This gospel message is certitude itself. It's written on the divine parchment of God's eternal covenantal purpose, written in the blood of the suffering Son of God. Your pardon is purchased, it's sealed. What more can I say? What other metaphors can I use to communicate the power and the significance of Christ's suffering for his people? There's nothing more I can say. So let me finish with a word from the Holy Scriptures. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Amen. Amen. It's my custom to close with prayer. Let's bow our heads. Holy Father, as we have begun looking to your word to teach us and to instruct us in the suffering of your only begotten Son, it really is an object that is too high for us. Our discernment is too low for it. And yet you have placed some of that, the truths there well within our reach. 
by your mercy, by your goodness, by the awakening work of the Holy Spirit quickening us and making us alive, we can now see that because of Christ's suffering, we have received the certitude of our salvation. Therefore, there is now no longer any condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Father, help us to take that uh, the certainty of that truth to heart. Help us to live in the certainty of that truth. We pray, Father, that you would not allow us to doubt what Christ has promised and accomplished through his own blood. We pray, Father, that Satan would find no leverage within us to cause us to doubt the certainty and the excellency of the suffering of Jesus Christ to procure salvation for us. We thank you, Father, that you so loved us that you did not withhold your own Son, and that he suffered, Lord, that you laid the chastisement for our peace upon him, and you did that for us. These things are too great for us. What can we say? Hallelujah, what a Savior. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen.